We do have a ton to get through in this episode. Common sense is finally prevailing. There was controversy this month, Dave. I'm not particularly excited by that. Secrets and things on set. I haven't told them anything. I think this is just good times all round. Every Doctor Who is liked by somebody and that's a really good thing. Davo, my Doctor. I know we disagree on this one. First world problems, Dave. I get why fans are asking those questions. Oh gosh, that's actually quite a lot to talk about. It doesn't compute. It's the elephant in the room. That's okay. Fandom versus the BBC. The cardinal sin. Moving along. Lunch. Hello, I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And tonight, on a very special episode of the Doctor Who Show, <laughs> we are, of course, coming to you a couple of days earlier than we normally would because, Rob, today, as this goes out, is the 60th anniversary of the airing of An Unearthly Child, the start of Doctor Who. It is, Dave. We're going to time it so that it's going out later in the day in Australia. It'll be morning in the UK, but it will all be on the 23rd, no matter where you are downloading this, assuming you're downloading it on the day. Absolutely. And our topic for tonight is, of course, Doctor Who. Yeah. Doctor Who. Why we're fans, what we love, and importantly, listeners, why your fans and what you love, because to celebrate the 60th anniversary today, we are going to hear from many of you, and thank you to everybody who sent in feedback. It's been really, really good, but we're all going to celebrate this show and its 60th anniversary. Yeah, we don't often canvas opinions. I mean, people know they can always write to us for any episode. But for this one, we went out there a couple of times this past month, asked you for your opinions, and by golly, we got a lot of them. It's almost as though listeners to our show really like Doctor Who. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It is. So look, that's the celebration. That's what we're going to do. Uh, Some of the anecdotes, if you're a long-time listener, you may have heard before. They may be new to others. That's okay. We're Mm. celebrating 60 years. We're looking back. But we also have got a review to start the show, Rob. We do. We always kick off with the Apple Podcast reviews. So I'm going to read one now, Dave, from T. Quinn's 96 from Great Britain. This came in on the 19th of last month, back in October. It's titled Excellent Five Stars, and it runs thus. My top podcast of all the Doctor Who ones I listen to. Rob and Dave are charming, laid-back and good-humoured hosts. They have insightful discussions, great debates, and they never take themselves or Doctor Who too seriously. Keep up the good work, guys. Your episodes are always the highlight of my week. Well, thank you very much to Tquins96 for sending that in. Uh, Look, if you met us in person, you might not be so generous, but I'm (laughs) glad we come across that way on the podcast. Thank you for the review. And we might be about to burst that we never take Doctor Who too seriously with our upcoming (laughs) discussions. It's, It's just possible. Now, Rob, we mentioned we're doing things a little bit differently. Part of that is, of course dropping this a few days early to coincide with the anniversary. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that we decided to do, a little bit different this time, is we're going to smoosh together the news segment and the short topic segment because, well, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, when it comes to the news, it's all happening. Yes. (laughs) The anniversary is here. Episodes are coming out this Sunday. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's all very exciting. So uh, we've got that. But also the three news topics that we have got are all ones that could also be short topics. Mm. So we thought rather than try and spread this all out and split this all out, we're just going to have the news with a bit of extra commentary and do it all together, which also makes more room for all our listener comments. Yeah, they're not just things that have happened. They're things that have happened and people have opinions, including us. (laughs) 
Yeah, absolutely. So before we look back and get all nostalgic, we're going to look back just a few weeks to what's happened in November. Mm. And I'm going to start, Rob, with the news that there was a Children in Need skit that Mm -hmm. went out featuring Doctor Who. Now, there are two parts to this topic. The first part, and I think it's the one we should start with, is the sketch itself. Rob, you watched it? I did, Dave. And watching the piece, I thought, oh, this is really good. This is really fun. Oh, look, this is... This is Davros maybe before he had his accident. You know, that that's really interesting. Oh, it's like when we had Davros as a young boy back in the Capaldi era. All, all good. And the skit itself was super jokey. I took that in kind. I was actually eye-rolling at all the fans who were being all super serious. Like, oh my God, the Doctor named the Daleks. The Doctor, the Doctor gave the Daleks the sink plunge that they were taking it so seriously. I was right on board with this being a silly, funny thing. No problem at all. I thought it was great yeah i was sort of with you it was very amusing because i really sort of had no idea this was coming out it just wasn't something that had come across my radar until i saw a couple of people mention on twitter that they'd seen this destination scarrow whatever it was called i was i said to one um what what's that Mm. they said that there'd been a children in need sketch on that night before so um i was off to work that morning so i didn't get to watch it till the night Mm. and i put it on and I think it's important for listeners inside the UK to really appreciate just to what an extent the whole children in need concept is just a UK thing. I mean, I can't remember when we last had a telethon. I mean, Perth used to do them back in sort of the 90s. And do they still do the Good Friday Appeal telethon robberies? Is that sort of all online now? I'm not sure. There are still telethons from time to time. I've stumbled across them, but they're such small scale pathetic little things compared to what they were in the 80s for example yeah it's it's certainly not the national event here that it is in the uk so i think it's worth noting that we as non-british viewers probably go into it not quite with the right context or not quite initially with the right context and that was certainly the case for me because for the first probably 90 seconds of this five minute sketch i was sitting there going what is this what's it that's a bit like really Really? Mm. And then I suddenly remembered what Children in Need was, and there were a couple of just very obvious, just outright jokes. And I've, I've gone, that's right, it's a comedy sketch. Yeah, yeah. And then, I, then I, I, I flicked the switch in my mind from watching Doctor Who to watching a comedy sketch and laughed along with it and thought it was very fun and very delightful. Uh, like you, I was sort of like, oh, wow, this is... Davros pre-accident, that's an interesting idea. They've probably saved on makeup there. That's a very useful little thing to have done. And I was I was a little bit curious as to which doctor was going to rock up when the, the TARDIS opened. Would it be Tennant? Would it be Shooty? Would it be someone else? But no, it was Tennant, and this is obviously his first moment post-regen, which was cool. It was a fun five minutes. I laughed a little bit, and I thought that was going to be the end of it. Until part two, which is when you sent me some comments that... Uh, new showrunner Russell T Davies has made and uh, I had some thoughts you had some thoughts Mm -hmm. who would you like to share their thoughts first Rob I'll jump in first Dave because I saw the RTD comments in the corresponding Unleashed episode with the inference that this is how Davros will now be portrayed from now on as this human he's not burned he's not damaged he's not in his chair because Davros being disabled is representing disability as evil, basically, to, to RTD and to a to an unnamed group of people who we discussed this with. And I thought to myself, no, 
No, no, no, no, no, Russell. I mean, I understand the argument he's putting forward, and obviously he believes in it, and he thinks he's doing a, a good and righteous thing. But I'm not sure it's something that needed fixing, and I'll stop there for the moment. Yeah, it's interesting. My first thought was that this is actually nothing new for the show. And I remember uh, John Nathan Turner and others have talked about when he cast Nabil Shaban to play Sill. Yes. And initially there was this big sort of, great, you're doing the right thing, you're hiring a disabled actor who doesn't get a lot of work, that's, that's really good. And then there was you've made him an evil slug. That's really bad. Mm. And, and and that was just a sort of a conversation that was had 40 years ago. So I thought this isn't particularly new. Uh, my second thought was, you know what? Russell T. Davies making a comment outside of the show actually doesn't worry me all that much. I think there are many producers and script editors and showrunners and writers who have sort of made these offhand comments along the way uh, and not even in Doctor Who I, I remember J.K. Rowling suddenly declaring that Dumbledore was gay despite mm. the fact that it hadn't been mentioned or implied in any book no. anywhere she's just like oh by the way I've made him gay now so it's like well okay you can say that but it's not in the book so who cares yeah, yeah. And, and my reaction to this was like okay you've said this about Davros well it's not in the show so I don't care we'll see what happens if and when Davros turns up next do I think it's necessary look no I probably don't I think that there is more going on with the character of Davros than just he's in a wheelchair, therefore he's evil. Mm. Um, like, you know, there's a whole backstory there. Look, as a kid, when I first saw Davros, I didn't say there's a guy in a wheelchair. I said, there's a guy whose bottom half looks like the bottom half of a Dalek. Yeah. Uh, so I never yeah. made that connection anyway. Uh, look, if he feels that it's a big problem, my preference would be to retire the character rather than change the character. But look... At this stage, mostly, it's a throwaway comment, off-air, and I'm not that invested. Okay. I'll, I'll kick off with the Nabil Shaban thing that you mentioned. I think this is a classic example of people, particularly able-bodied people, trying to take on causes of disabled people when there's not actually a cause to take on. Because I think Nabil Shaban bloody loved playing Sill, and you see him at conventions, he loves impersonating him and, and stuff. <laughs> I think he really enjoyed it. So I I don't think he was on board with, oh, they shouldn't have done that. No, Bill Shaban bloody loved it. Well, he came, he came back, what, two, three years ago to play the seeds of Corbin or whatever in that thing oh, with Sophie Audrey. Right. So right. he, he obviously loved it enough to do it recently. Yeah. And I mean, uh, wider than that, has there been some movement in fandom about Davros being problematic? Doctor Who fans aren't shy about coming forward with comments about stuff, no matter how fringe or out there it is. And, and no, there's been nothing. I have never heard a fan ever say, oh gosh, isn't it terrible that Davros is a disabled person and, he, and he's evil? What are we saying by that? I have never heard that in 40 years of being a Doctor Who fan, honestly. So for Russell to sit there and very, you know, this has been a thing for so long, we're going to fix this. It's like, oh, really? Honestly? Where has this come from, Dave? Is this a Disney influence? Is this some overreaching focus group? It's certainly not fandom to my mind. Look, I certainly haven't seen it anywhere either. But, but as I say, given that people made the comment... 40 years ago about Sill. I, I guess people have those views out there. I don't know how representative they are, but that's it, really. I'm, I'm, not, yeah. more, I'm not more invested than that. Yeah, oh, that, but, but I, I certainly am. I mean... <laughs> and, and that's fair enough. <laughs> Here I go. I mean, who, who, on, who on earth looks at Davros and then decides that people with disabilities are evil? You know, I think 
Russell needs to give the audience more credit for its ability to think and to reason that a ranty space Nazi who got blown up and is now basically more like his creations than human is somehow representative of the next person you see on the street in a wheelchair? Does anyone listening to this, anyone out there, do you see a person in a wheelchair and think, well, gosh, they must be evil because Davros is? I mean, it's just nonsense to me. And Russell's response to it all, he's told at least one fan on social that I've seen, you know, tough, which I found quite arrogant to the degree, um, you're saying it's not bothering you so much, but to the degree for me that it's coloured some of my giddiness for the 60th. I mean, you all heard me on the last episode, like, oh, the 60th is coming, it's going to be a great month. This has coloured it to some degree, not to a huge degree, because let's be honest, here in 2023, I'm used to beloved franchises having people get in charge and decide they know best and do things to legacy characters. I mean, hello, Star Wars. But it's been a bit of a fly in the ointment for me. I'm, I'm just gobsmacked by it, Dave, honestly. Well, fair enough. I, look, I, I know other fans that are equally sort of as put out by it as you, and I know other fans that are kind of just bemused by it like me, and that's okay. Yeah, well, I, I mean, just to finish, will Doctor Who start double-guessing every villain from now on? Can villains going forward be trans? Can they be gay? Can they be people of colour? These are all groups or parts of society that we could make the argument, oh, making that character evil reflects on that group of people now. You can make exactly the same argument for disability as you can with other groups. I mean, are we going to keep doing that? Who does it leave to play villains? I think the best answer is just to write good stories with great characters, no matter who they are, and just let the cards fall where they may. Anyway, I'll shut up. I'm, I'm going to get too wound up otherwise. We're only, <laughs> we're only 13 minutes into the episode. That, that's right. We've got 60 years to cover, so we better keep moving on. Rob, you've got our next piece of news slash short topic. I do. Dave, it's it's interesting that we're two old school fans and, you know, we, we might be thought of as set in our ways and how things should be. I mean, gosh, I've just been talking about Davros and people are probably saying, yeah, that's because you're an old school fan. You're not down with the kids. But... Over the recent weeks, I think we've really diverged on this topic I'm about to bring up, which is the colorization and editing of the Daleks into a 75-minute color piece for the 60th anniversary. Now, we've seen some stills from it. We still haven't seen any footage as of making this episode, but it will be dropping imminently for people in the UK on the day this episode goes out. And it's going to be on physical media in February next year for people who don't um, see it in the UK or can't uh, get it on the high seas. Dave, shall I start talking about this, or do you want to have first salvo on this one? Yeah, look, I, I've been keeping my powder dry on this for a few weeks now, so I'm ready to go. Okay. Look, I first saw this news on Twitter when I woke up uh, one morning a couple of weeks ago, and my mm-hmm. initial reaction was to get on Twitter and tell everybody what I thought. But then, look, I had a uh, rush of common sense and thought, no, why spoil everybody's enthusiasm with my negative views? And to this date, I haven't posted anything about this with the exception of replying to a post that you made Robin a couple of mm-hmm. us and a couple of mm-hmm. our listeners had a you know nice little discussion about this in the in the thread uh, but now I'm in front of the microphone and you've asked me for my opinion <laughs> here we go let me say I understand that this is not for me so all the comments I'm about to make should in part be taken with that context and that grain of salt Mm-hmm. However, I don't understand who this is actually for. I 
appreciate the argument is that this is a way to introduce newer fans, particularly younger fans, people who've come to the show with a new series, to introduce them to the Hartnell years, to the 60s, to Classic Who, to Early Who, whatever phrase you may use. But in my mind, that's a very strange argument because trying to introduce them to 60s Who with a piece of television where you have cut 100 minutes out of 175 minutes, colorized it, and changed the music, is rather like trying to introduce somebody to the Beatles by playing them a one-minute version of Hey Jude as sung by Taylor Swift, and then saying, <laughs> you now understand the Beatles. Well, well, no, I think that all you're doing is changing the, the heart and the soul of what makes the 60s what it was to try and suck people in who are then going to watch the next episode. They're going to go watch The Edge of Destruction and go, well, hang on, this isn't in colour and fast-paced and with jaunty 90s music. What's going on? So <laughs> I'm not quite sure what purpose it's meant to serve. And the final point I'll make is a number of people have said, if you don't like this, well, you know, why are you so passionate? It's not for you, etc. Well, to that, I will just point out that we're about to do a, you know, probably close to two-hour episode about how much we love Doctor Who. And listeners know that, you know, I love the show. Mm -hmm. I particularly love the, the Hartnell era. I love the Daleks. And so I think love is an emotional thing. Yep. And we're allowed to feel a little bit, you know, emotional, crotchety, defensive, possessive, jealous, whatever emotion you want to use. I think, I think it's natural if you love something to feel defensive and jealous about it. It's mm -hmm. just like when Moffat butchered the character of the first Doctor in Twice Upon a Time and fans mm. said, oh, why do you care that much? Well, I care because I love this thing and love makes you irrational. So <laughs> my irrational take of this is that I hate it. Mm. Uh, and that's my piece. Okay. I'm going to use a musical analogy too. It doesn't quite answer who this is for, which is which is your question. But I've been using the example on social media in, in the weeks past that I see this like a remix of a song. And remixes can be really cool or they can be really grim. And we don't know which it is because we haven't seen it yet. But what a remix always is, is an interpretation of something presenting it in a new light. And I always find that interesting. Whenever a remix of a familiar tune comes up, I like to try it out. And sometimes I like them, sometimes I don't like them. So when it comes to the Daleks, I am sitting here wondering what editorial decisions they've made with the script. That's quite interesting to me. I wonder if it will play more like the Cushing movie now that it's a similar length. I wonder what the colorization will feel like when we're watching it minute after minute after minute. Because for years, Dave, we've seen guys on Twitter saying, look, I've colorized 20 seconds of this Troughton story. And you think, oh, well, good on you. You know, that, that looks really interesting. But it goes nowhere. You know, it's just 20 seconds and then it ends. We've never experienced watching whole stories of Doctor Who properly colorized like this. And I think that's interesting. And most importantly, it's not replacing the Daleks. The Daleks is still the Daleks. And I'll be cheeky here. The same as the Pet Shop Boys cover of Always On My Mind, Dave, that I know you love. I do, I do. Is, is still the version of the song that you can find on their introspective LP or the discography LP. It's still there. But you can also find 12-inch mixes of it. So should those 12-inch mixes not exist? I think they're fine. They don't change that the original track is there. Are they designed to get new fans for the track? Probably not. 
I'm still curious as to who this is really for too. I presume it's along the lines of people who would never watch a black and white are going to tune in to this. But broadly, I'm on board, you know, and as a more traditional fan, and again, especially given that defense of the Davros thing a moment ago, maybe I'm meant to be flipping out too, but I'm not. And I think this is a strength of our podcast, Dave, that people can't tie us down to, oh, he'll think this way about this topic, because in this instance, you feel that way about it. I feel quite different. If anything, this is the reverse of the Davros situation where I was very full on about it and you were more bemused. And here, I'm, I'm quite into this idea while you're more full on about it. I, I think this is going to be a fine, fun little thing over in the corner for the 60th. Look, Rob, that's the best argument anyone's yet made for the existence of this. And, and, oh, and, really? Yeah, yeah, no, look, look, I, I, I get the point you're making. I, I think that's a really interesting and you know worthwhile point. And look, I can remember when Jeff Wayne remixed all of the War of the World soundtrack and rushing out to buy that. CD and, and seeing what the remix was like. So, so yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm open to it. To, to, to be clear, I don't mind that this exists. I don't want to take this and erase it from history. Right. It's just not something I'm going to spend cash on, and it's something that I feel a little bit defensive about. And that's that's fair, and you've explained why, you know, very adequately. So I, I, I get where you're coming from. Yeah, and look, when it does hit the streets, and if somebody says, look, it's actually better than you expect, I'll lend you a copy, check it out. Maybe I'll check it out. I'm not going to rush out and spend money on it. But look, if you say it's great, Rob, and, you know, that I really need to check it out, I trust you, I just might do that. But we'll see. Oh, good. Well, I've ordered, the, uh, ordered a copy for uh, February next year. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the first time I see it, unless I go on the high seas, we'll see. Speaking of having to go on the high seas... <laughs> yes, good segue. Our final little news slash short topic item is the release of the Tales of the TARDIS. Mm. Now, this was a very badly announced thing that turned out to be really quite lovely and deserved a better announcement because there was this sort of proclamation that we were doing these new tales of the TARDIS and it was sort of implied to be these new episodes or new sort of spin-offs or, or something, you know, something of substance. Uh, and then it was sort of made very clear that if you don't live in the UK and pay your TV tax, you're not allowed to watch it. Well, they'd said that Pete McTie was involved and we all know Pete McTie is doing those little trailers for the Blu-rays that tell a little story, you know, often on location with ex-companions and stuff. And we thought it would be on, along the lines of that. And it was actually a lot more basic. Yeah, it, it was. And so but my first reaction was actually quite a bit of righteous anger that fans outside the UK weren't being given any capacity to watch these new mm -hmm. stories at all. Then when I discovered that they were basically just tops and tails for a few stories on um, BBC iPlayer, I thought, okay, well, that's quite reasonable. Of course, if they're a top and a tail for an iPlayer release, only people watching the iPlayer can get them. Okay, I'm, I now understand. I wish someone had said that when they'd announced it rather than trying to overcook the pudding. So I thought the announcement was done in a really hackish sort of way. Um, but look, I did get on my pirate ship and I did get some copies from a, uh, a close friend at mm -hmm. 42 to Doomsday. Hi, Mark, if you're listening. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, look, I watched them and they were quite delightful. Uh, it was good to see a couple of those old actors Again, look, some were a little bit better than others. Uh, some tried a little bit too hard to weave themselves into continuity. But look, it's a half hour of just sort of spent watching some old actors have a nice time. I thought they were lovely, utterly disposable, probably never watched them again. But it made me feel good. I just wish the release of them had been better announced. 
Yeah, particularly as they sort of came out and were like, you know, the the 60th anniversary starts here. Tales of the TARDIS. Yeah. Only if you're in the UK. And it's like, oh, my God. Like, I, I know how Doctor Who is made. I know that British taxpayer money goes into it and so on. And in this case, these weren't funded with Disney money and all that sort of thing. I understand all that background. But when you are in your 60th anniversary month and you are trying to go out to a global audience and that's what the Disney deal is all about after all and all of this and you put out the first salvo and ostensibly the rest of the world aside from the UK can't see it that's that's extraordinary to me yeah I'm right there with you on that in terms of the episodes themselves I thought the Davo and Tegan piece was quite nice when they were discussing Adric because yes. it's not really a conversation that's been had in that way before. And Davo sort of not realising what he meant to Adric. I thought, oh, this is really good. And I also thought the Stephen and Vicky piece worked well. And I can't tell Dave whether it's because I just enjoyed seeing them do it. Like Peter Purvis actually inhabiting Stephen again. And I love Stephen. We'd already seen Maureen O'Brien, of course, do a turn as Vicky in one of those Blu-ray short type things that I mentioned. Or whether it was because their style of acting in the piece which felt like they were doing 60s who sort of suited that minimal set non-flashy vibe of these videos because they are just on one set and the way Purvis and O'Brien acted I think just suited it or I don't know what it was yeah yeah I was going to highlight the O'Brien Purvis one as well it's probably probably being my favorite of the bunch And, Mm. and and it was I think it was just delightful seeing two characters from the 60s come back and re-inhabit it. I, I did feel like something wasn't quite right, not in a bad way, but just something was a little bit different. And you've put your, you've, you've put your finger on it there. They were acting in a very 60s sort of way and, and watching it now did feel a little bit like, that's acting still? No. Um, no. And I'm not, not knocking them. It was, it was delightful. It was lovely. But it, it, it actually did feel like watching people acting 60s style in the 2020s. And that was, that was interesting and cool and a little bit weird. Yeah, when it's just on that tiny little set with maybe only a few cameras, it, it works because <laughs> it, is, it is like the 60s, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, some delightful things that have happened, some controversial things that have happened, but you cannot deny that we are building up to the Doctor Who 60th anniversary. Stuff is happening. Oh, yes. Loads of stuff is happening. Not least, we are getting three episodes starting Saturday for the UK, Sunday in Australia. So looking forward to it. Absolutely, and we'll talk more about our plans for that at the end of the episode. But we're Mm -hmm. going to dive into our feature. We are talking Doctor Who. We are talking 60 years. We are talking our experience as fans. So, look, let's kick off. And what we're going to do, Rob, as you know, because you've got the run sheet in front of you as well. I do. Is we are going to break this off into different chunks. We're going to go into sort of, you know, from our starters Doctor Who viewers right up to becoming podcasters and intersperse that with some little bunches of fan and listener feedback. Mm. The first topic is our origins of the show. Rob, how did you start as Doctor Who? What's your first memory of Doctor Who? My first memory, Dave, is, is a very, not vague because I can still almost feel the terror It was running away from the television set playing the theme music. And this would have been the late 70s. I've I've mentioned on other podcasts I have an older brother and it's through my older brother that I've gotten into many things over the years, whether it be The Beatles or whether it be Doctor Who or whether it be particular movies and so on. And this was no different, although I was probably a little young. I I think I must have been about three or four and he put on 
it would have been probably the start of a Tom Baker episode. You know, we're talking late seventies. And as the music started going, I just freaked out. I'd never heard anything like that in my life. And I, I ran out of the room. <laughs> I have no memory of actually watching the episode. I just know that the theme music terrified me, Dave. That's my absolute first memory of the show. That's fantastic. Mine is a little bit later, although I was a little bit younger. I must have been about two or three. Wow. And it's just images that have stuck with me. Clearly, Dad, who's a big fan, was watching the show. Clearly, I was a toddler and you know basically sitting on his lap while he watched TV, which mm-hmm. I'm sure many dads can relate to. And I can remember the image of a guy dressed sort of in, in, in white tinkering with this strange blue pinky sort of box as a very angry gruff man stood over him being slightly scary and slightly intimidating and then later they all went inside a great big silver ball that was full of strange fantastic controls oh really yeah so you were watching what the time warrior mordron undead mordron undead oh there we go <laughs> I was thinking of the Santaran ship when you said Silver Ball. Yes. No, no. It was the, the transmat device from Modern Undead. The gruff man I now know was the Brigadier. Right. And, uh, and so I remember a couple of those scenes from there. I also have memories of the Malice from The Awakening just being utterly terrifying. And yeah. I have very, very vague memories of seeing Caves of Androzani for the first time. And again, just images of the Doctor just sort of being ripped apart, beaten, things blowing up. That's all I can remember. But I do have those first memories of the show from being a toddler on dad's lap well this is interesting because although you're five years younger than me dave you are at this point watching the show when i'm not watching it i'm aware of the show in this period in the early to mid 80s where you're seeing these things but i wasn't avidly watching it i wasn't watching it as a fan even with our repeat schedule here in australia uh even with my brother being a fan of the show i wasn't watching it i got the bug around 86 my brother was showing me the bbc videos i started paying more attention to the tv episodes i started reading my brother's doctor who magazines and just being intrigued by i think when you're young you see something you see knowledge and you want to soak it up and I could see in Doctor Who magazine, oh my God, these are articles about things that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago. This is a whole thing I can learn about. I got very excited. And then I started buying Doctor Who magazine as well. And that's when I got really fanish about the show. So I missed all this sort of era that you're talking about. But come 86 with those repeats that were happening then. And then I think in early 87, we had the trial of a time lord season i was way into fandom then i I was a ferret of a fan yeah look so my memories of the show develop as i obviously grew up the show was on throughout my entire life as i said my dad was a fan Uh, and in fact because my dad was a fan who worked shifts he was one of the very early people to buy a vhs recorder and actually start taping the show when he he was at night shift so that's why we had some of these off-air copies of you know assorted episodes quite early i can remember watching the twin dilemma uh, I, I can particularly remember the scene where the dad comes in and says, oh my God, you're going to play equations as though like they just said they're going to shoot up heroin or something. Um, and sort of thinking, this was a, this, wow, what are these naughty kids doing? That's amazing. Yeah, um, equations? Yeah, I, I can remember the repeat of season 18 that suddenly started when they didn't have the, the rating for the, the Caves of Androzani. So they got, got to the, plan, at the end of Planet of the Forest and said, look, we can't show Caves of Androzani yet, so we're going to go back to the Leisure Hive. 
um, which was just, <laughs> you do. just just typical of, of of that. I certainly saw repeats before the 86 repeat run, and I could vaguely remember those things happening. But the 86 run happened when I was five or six, and that was probably when I... That was probably the first run when I was old enough to really understand Doctor Who's coming back. It's a set of stories. Oh my goodness, the first one's the Mind Robber. That's that's a second Doctor story in black and white. Wow. And then mm. you know, going through the Crotons and watching all the Pertwee era and then some Toms. And then we got the Saturday afternoon repeats of the later Tom Bakers. And I can remember watching Trial and being utterly, utterly bewildered by it. My main memory is that I understood this concept that the Matrix was lying and it was sort of distorting these stories from the Doctor's past. But I didn't get that there were stories that weren't televised. So yeah. I was trying to work out which story had been corrupted. I thought, well, hang on, this this story's got sill in it, so this must be a corruption of Vengeance on Varos. So, you know, that's, that's six-year-old or seven-year-old logic. Mm-hmm. Up there with me trying to work out which Pertwee story involve the third doctor visiting Carful because right. it, it can't be an untelevised story. That doesn't make sense. So I, I by process of elimination, I worked out that the mutants must be set on Carful because everything else was either on <laughs> Earth, you know, had Daleks, had, you know, something the master. So that was the only one that, you know, by process of elimination, it could still be. So I thought that the mutants was a prequel to Time Lash for a very long time. Interesting. It's interesting the things our young minds come up with, isn't it? It, it is. Um, look, one extra point while I'm still going, and just just to riff on something you said, and that is the mm. the reference material we had, and the two that I look back on incredibly fondly, and I think anybody probably around about our vintage, particularly on Australia, will will remember these, and that's the technical manual and the Radio Times. Uh, 20th anniversary special magazine which Mm -hmm. look we look at them now and they're a little bit primitive a little bit dated but the archive photos they had in them are still spectacular and as a young kid to have color photos of 60 cybermen cybermats to have a photo of the weed creature from fury from the deep in the magazine all that sort of thing that was that was really really good but that was the extent of my reference material until some years later when I got the Haining books for Christmas and then when I was 10, bought the program guide for the first time. Yeah, well, I was going to mention Haining because by 87, I was hiring uh, Doctor Who A Celebration, which had come out in, what, 83. So I was four years old at that point. Um, and I was borrowing that like every week from the library and just, again, just absorbing stuff like a sponge. Yeah, absolutely. And the Target novels were there. And for a while, Dad used to just read me a chapter of a Target novel every night as my, my bedtime mm-hmm. reading. When I was really young, I wanted to pick a different one every day. And so we'd get you know, chap- <laughs> chapter one of a different story every night. And at some point, Dad said, you know, we could just read the next chapter of this book until we finish the book. And I think I think he was getting a bit frustrated at that. So And so then we did sort of start. It was, you know, this thing that I'd get, you know, dad would read to me every night and mum would read to my sister and I'd, I'd have target books. But the thing that I, I really want to highlight, the last point I want to make in this segment is how important that Pertwee era was to me as a developing young fan. And again, a story that I suspect is not unfamiliar for a lot of our listeners and a lot of you know, real Doctor Who fans and probably a lot of viewers as well, is that on the scale of nerd to jock, we probably tend more to the nerd end of that spectrum. And certainly as a kid who would go into the library, you know, once a week we'd have library period and we'd 
all be obliged to go and borrow three books every week and my friends will be going to the kids section or whatever and I'll be straight off to the non-fiction section and borrowing these huge great big hardbacks about mysteries or history or UFOs or something you know th- that sort of thing and and having a character on TV who would on a regular basis say that knowledge and science and exploration were important. You know, that, that whole, you know, I jokingly sort mm. of, you know, talk about that whole science, Miss Grant sort of shtick. But I got that shtick at a time when I was really discovering uh, knowledge and reading and, and, and going out and doing that sort of thing. So the Perwy era was just exactly the right era for me as a primary school kid. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Well, on that note, let's see what others have to say. Rob, would you like to kick us off with friend of the podcast, someone who's hosted us on his podcast before, Mr. Mark Cockrum. Mark says, G'day, Rob and Dave. Happy anniversary to you and your listeners. Doctor Who has been a big part of my life for as long as I can remember. Growing up in the UK in the 70s and 80s, it was a part of the culture. Tom was my doctor. You never forget your first. He was mesmerizing, weird, funny, and sometimes even a bit scary. But you always felt secure in the knowledge that he would save the day. Seeing his regeneration as an eight-year-old was equal parts heartbreaking and exhilarating. And the promise of a new incarnation encouraged me to explore the adventures of the previous doctors in the form of the target novelizations during gaps between seasons, which was a big influence in getting the young me reading. I had a bit of a wobble during season 24 as time in the Rani was excruciatingly embarrassing for this 14-year-old who found it all a bit cringe-inducing, but by the time of Remembrance of the Daleks, I was back on board. And I've stuck with it ever since. I don't universally love all of it, but even not-so-great Doctor Who is better than most other telly. I've been involved in podcasting for the best part of 12 years now, and I've made some great friends along the way, including some Bonza Antipodeans. So thank you, Doctor Who, and here's to the next 60 years. Cheers from Mark Cockrum. Thank you very much, Mark. I've got a tweet via Richard Smith at Richard1j1smith, who says... I became a fan because my dad watched Doctor Who. He'd watched it from the very start, but he particularly liked the Pertwee unit stories. It also wasn't that unusual to watch Doctor Who in Britain in the 70s. Most children seemed to. So at first, I was a viewer rather than a fan. The first conscious thing I did that led me to become a fan was to buy the Target book Doctor Who and the Daleks in 1975, and then another 50 or so in the ensuing four years. My dad and I went to the Blackpool exhibition. I got the theme music as a 7-inch single, and I watched the show. I lost interest in 1979. I stopped buying the Target books and didn't watch much of season 17. But then one day, coming home from secondary school in my first term, there it was, Doctor Who Weekly number one. And that's when I fully became a fan. 12 pence led to a lifelong obsession. Doctor Who Weekly led to Doctor Who Magazine, led to DWAS, led to fanzines, conventions, videos, merchandise, the lot, and all those Target books I'd missed. But then the second drift away. I left home in 1986, got married in 1991, and for about a decade pretended to be normal. (laughs) Finally, it was Big Finish that brought me back on those first few years of their Doctor Who range, then the new series, podcast, DWM again, and the web before I was finally and irrevocably snared by the Omni-Rumor in 2013 and became a very small part of organized fandom myself. Wow. 
seeing some themes already with the target books yeah absolutely and and i should also just mention i mentioned my dad was a fan he can absolutely still remember coming home from rugby training as a young lad and watching the very first episode of doctor who 60 years ago so wow yeah wow we've got a couple of short tweets here as well one from friend of the show mike sulko at ma sulko he says, Doctor Who is dangerous. It's strange. You should never feel completely safe while watching Who, even if it's a silly episode. The theme music, the cliffhangers, the unknown. It's brilliant. So true, Mike. And I've got a tweet from Jason at Doctor Who Novels. Discovered the show in the States in late 1984. Went to my first US convention in 85. Joined online fandom in 1992. Recarts Doctor Who was not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> Got into podcasting during the pandemic, didn't we all? And now have a weekly podcast on the Target Books. Yep, definitely going to be a recurring theme there, I think. Thank you, Jason. Target Books and podcasting. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's our first bunch of listener feedback, but on to our next segment, which is Club Life. Now, I'll, I'll mm. start us off for this one, maybe, Rob, and okay. talk about just... I, I can remember dad coming home when I, I just turned seven and he used to go to minotaur in, in the in the in the city and buy the latest target books and bring them home and that was always exciting and he'd seen a flyer for the doctor who club of victoria so he signed us both up and we went along to a meeting i can remember at that very first meeting sort of seeing a whole bunch of people and being quite amazed that there were all these fans um at that first meeting they showed snake dance not quite sure why but they did um, so I remember seeing that and sort of being like, oh, wow, they can show videos of old stuff I haven't seen. That's pretty exciting. And then the second meeting was a more common venue, which was somebody's lounge room. Back in those days, the club would sort of meet every few months at a proper hired venue and in between just at somebody's lounge room. And there'd always be someone's mum sort of, you know, making orange juice and handing out biscuits and sort of being quite <laughs> amused that all these people had rocked up to watch this strange television show in their son's front room. And yes. um, I can remember watching the Aztecs at the second meeting I went to on somebody's living room television set, a terrible copy, but that would have been my first proper experience of the Hartnell years. After that, I can remember in lounge rooms watching the Ark, watching the war games, and being utterly baffled by it. There's, there's more to come, but that was the start of my fandom, in club life, I should say. Right. Well, mine starts in 87, Dave. We left off in 86 for me, where I'm starting to, to just consume stuff and get dwim and all of this. And then in 87, it was very early in the new year. It, it was possibly my first or second week of high school. I was down in the local library after school and I requested the five doctors be brought in from a uh, another local library because they had a reciprocal sharing agreement. If you wanted a book that wasn't at that library, they'd bring it in from another library. And this, uh, this boy, I can say boy because we're all boys back then, this boy comes up to me and says, did I just hear you ask for the five doctors? And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> He's like, well. There are some very bad movies that start like that. Yeah, uh, and this was this was friend of the show, Mark Douglas, and he's like, well, I've, I've got a local fan group, you know, would you be interested in coming along to my house and, and watching, you know, old episodes of the show and meeting other fans? And I was, I was kind of overwhelmed by this because it's not the kind of thing you expect to happen in the local library, you know, someone coming up and talking to you at all, let alone asking you over to their house. Uh, to watch Doctor Who. So he had this club called Time Flight, and this is quite different to the the Australasian Doctor Who fan club, which was, you know, the, the big one that 
you know, most of the country belonged to. These meetings happened all through the year between February and October, and I didn't go to any of them. And Mark maybe thought I was a bit flaky. And then the 23rd of November was coming up and he was going to have a sleepover event at his house. So not just go over and watch shows and drink cordial for a few hours, but actually have a sleepover. And I seem to recall his mum called my mum, you know, because I'm still, what am I at this stage? I've, I've turned 12. So I'm still pretty young and I hadn't been to any of these other meetings at Mark's house. And so it was a whole thing where his mother talked to my mother and assured her it would be okay. And in the end, I didn't even end up doing the sleepover component. I went over on both days of the event and watched the shows, but I didn't actually sleep over. So that was where I first saw some Hartnell as well, because Mark had a very wonky copy of the pilot episode of An Unearthly Child, not the televised one, the, 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 the actual pilot. And... That was the first Hartnell I ever saw in 87. Wow, that's so cool. It's yeah. really, really lovely. So, look, I, I kept going to meetings. Dad and I kept going to meetings together. And, look, I think Dad would have preferred to have been taking me to, you know, play soccer or something. But, you know, he had a, <laughs> eventually had a daughter who went on to play some, you know, women's soccer. So he was very happy with that. And he got Good. to take me to Doctor Who meetings. And the next little really big meeting that I have really vivid memories was a full video night held in the city and they said right this isn't just going to be an afternoon meeting where we come to somebody's lounge room and watch four episodes or something we're going to have a whole saturday evening it's going to go right into the night of, of, of videos couple of rooms playing and um i know for a fact that my lifelong friend richard was there we didn't know each other at the time but he was there i think mark from 42 to doomsday was there other people we know were there and then they had another one of these at Melbourne Uni six months later. And it's the second one that I really remember. The first one I remember well enough. You know, we saw Edge of Destruction and stuff like that. Uh, that was the first occasion I saw anything of the McCoy era where they showed the first five minutes of Time and the Rani and we all just laughed. <laughs> but the next one I can remember, one room had the invasion and then the next room had the Daleks. And that was the first time I saw both of those stories and just being absolutely blown away by being able to see these on the television and and also the club's audio department which i mentioned before they had these terrible scratchy recordings of 60s doctor who and this is the first time i heard stuff like the web planet marco polo the savages the highlanders and and some of them were reasonable enough copies that you could work out what was going on some of them if you'd at least read the target novel that was enough to help you follow and you just listen to them and thought why am i bothering you know yeah. so, but 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 again just just being able to see stories like this and most of the 60s stories i would have seen for the first time at meetings like that yeah well you know, I've been talking about the year 87 for me and how I didn't get into the, the local club until very late in the year. In 1988, everything just exploded. Now that I knew Mark and I knew the people in the club, I started going to more time flight meetings and I started going to the Australasian Doctor Who fan club parties, as they were called, in the city at Sydney Uni. That's where I saw Time and the Rani and, you know, the Sylvester McCoy stuff. And at the end of 1988, there was a big convention called Console 88 that had, you know, Mark Strickson and Katie Manning and uh, Julie Brennan. And I think Dudley Simpson might have been at that one. And I started to see people from the show. So from this initial flurry in 86 through to finally getting into the local club in 87, 88 was my big year, Dave. Everything just started to happen in 88. Yeah, that's 
exactly where I was at the time as well. And I also, like you wanted to mention the whole McCoy years, because this was the first time that I, as a fan, was seeing Doctor Who before it was on the television. Mm -hmm. Um, Long time after the UK had, because as we've discussed before, with the exception of Remembrance, we used to get the the show sort of a year, two years behind the UK. Yeah. But the first full McCoy story I saw was Dragonfire, again, in somebody's living room. And I can remember watching a lot of those stories in rooms with fans. And I've spoken about it before, but I just have this incredibly strong memory of our Christmas party, the club Christmas party at the end of 1989. And um, Mark had managed to get a copy of Battlefield and Curse of Fenric sent over from his pen friend in the UK only a couple of weeks after they'd been shown. And watching those stories in a room of, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 fans was Mm. an absolutely amazing experience. And the moment when we thought the Brigadier had died, I can still remember vividly the utter silence in that room. Just all these fans just holding their breath, not knowing what was going to happen, was absolutely extraordinary. And um, like you then, we had local conventions and stuff like that. And when I was old enough, when I was 15, I joined the club committee and... Some of the people I've served on that committee with are still not just acquaintances today, they are active friends today. People like Richard, Mark, Mark, Rob, Michael and others. These are people I still see on a regular basis today that I met in the mid-90s and that is utterly extraordinary and if you're going to take anything from being a Doctor Who fan, surely friendships like that have to be right up there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And look, if it wasn't for the fact that Mark Douglas now lives in the UK, I'm sure I'd see Mark <laughs> quite a lot. Um, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely positive of that. But to, to just go back to the videos, wasn't it extraordinary in those days to see content that no one else could see? Because up until now, it was either on TV here, you know, a year or, or whatever later, or you just didn't see it. That's how it was to actually see these tapes, you know. I couldn't even talk to people at school about it because they didn't give a crap about Doctor Who. So I couldn't go to school and say, I've seen Time and the Rani. It's not been on television here because no one would care. But to me, it was incredible. And and within the club, of course, we'd talk about it. But, but speaking of the club, by 89, so another year forward now, it all started to cool a bit because Mark was doing his high school certificate. That's the leaving exam, year 12 for people overseas. And of course, it was the final year of the show. So we were all sort of growing up. We were all sort of a bit too busy for things. And by 1990, the, the, the sort of the local club life had really cooled off. And by association, going to the Australasian Doctor Who fan club, things also started to cool off for a lot of us because a big part of going to those bigger events was because we were going with our mates from the local club. It was a social thing. In as much as it was exciting to see new Doctor Who, not that there was new Doctor Who by 1990, but you know what I mean. It was very much a social thing. So once the local club started to go under and not meet as often and such, interest in doing the bigger stuff waned. And of course, there was no show to back it up either. So for me, it started to go off the rails there a bit. Well, for me, that's when it really started to explode. <laughs> but we'll get to that in our next segment because we have some more listener feedback now, including, appropriately enough, this email from your lifelong friend, Mark Douglas. Should I read it? I was going to, but... <laughs> well, I think you should. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you, Rob. You can just enjoy the nostalgic glow. Okay. Doctor Who has always been a part of my life. 
Growing up in Australia in the 1970s and 1980s, it's well known we had endless repeats on TV, although it was still frustrating having to wait many months before seeing new season episodes. My earliest clear memory is from the Terror of the Zygons around 1977 or 1978. I was staying at my grandparents' place and I begged my grandfather to let me watch Doctor Who. It clashed with the news program he wanted to watch, but I helpfully pointed out that the AB screened the news after Doctor Who so he could watch it then. My five or six year old <laughs> self was very persuasive. Within two minutes of the episode starting, however, I was back in the kitchen where my grandfather was reading the newspaper. I thought you wanted to watch Doctor Who, he asked. Not anymore, I answered. The Zygons were too scary for me. By 1983, I was definitely a fan. I remember being very disappointed missing out on The Five Doctors when it was screened on Tuesday the 13th of December that year. Thank you, Broadcast Who. My year six farewell, leaving primary school, was on the same night and we didn't have a video recorder. I thought I would never see it. Oh... By a miracle, there was a big storm in Sydney that night. Many homes lost power. <laughs> just, just amusing that that was considered a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> there was a big storm in Sydney that night. Many homes lost power. So the ABC decided to show The Five Doctors again in January 1984. My parents had bought a VCR in the meantime, so I was able to record it. It was my first episode on videotape, and I watched it over and over again. To this day, I can still quote most of the dialogue word for word as I'm watching along. Fast forward to November 2023. My young self would never have believed that I would now have access to the Hooniverse with nearly every single available episode all in one place on BBC iPlayer and available to stream whenever I wanted. It's just incredible to think how much has changed and yet also remain constant. My love of a 60-year-old program, the one I now share with my son and my wife too, from Mark Douglas. Yeah, wow. And and perhaps self-effacingly, Mark hasn't mentioned any of the club that he ran locally or indeed the White Guardian fanzine that he made, which uh, which I will mention now because it was the White Guardian fanzine and, and you know, writing articles for that. And it sounds so silly now, but even just learning how to, to make a paste up and, and produce it on a photocopier and stuff that gave me a real interest in writing and reviewing and journalism and all that sort of stuff. And I actually became a journalist in my early years. I became an, uh, an IT journalist, not a not an entertainment journalist, but, you know, it, it instilled something in me, you know. So I, I thank Mark very much for, for even having the club and making the fanzine and all that sort of stuff, because I think it had a profound effect on my life, not not just my Doctor Who fandom. No, that's, that's really quite wonderful. And he did remind me, my dad was working the night of, I think it would have been that repeat of the five Doctors he mentioned. And mm-hmm. so he wanted both the episode going out that night and The Five Doctors, which was on sort of later in the evening, recorded. So it was my job, as I must have been about four, it was my job to, when Resurrection of the Daleks came on, record that, press record, play all at the same time. Da, 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 da. Then when it finished, stopped, changed the tape over, put that back in, switch on the timer and turn off the power. So that was my job as a four-year-old to make sure that we got both the Resurrection of the Daleks episode and the Five Doctors recorded that night. Did you do it that particular way where you do the, the play button and the record button and then quickly the pause button? Yes. And then you took and it then, off pause. When it was, yes. yes. 
<laughs> you try and think about two seconds ahead of when it would start and take pause off so you get that perfect intro on the tape. That's exactly right. That's exactly Modern right. kids have no clue what yes. we're talking about. But of course, that. I would have been in bed for the five doctors, so that had to be done on timer. And yeah, yeah I, I guess that's the equivalent of four-year-olds using iPhones now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, we have a piece here from Simon Burrows uh, via Facebook. He says, I have a tattoo of the TARDIS on my leg. Earlier this year, while celebrating my 50th birthday, and after watching Cat Stevens play the main stage at the Glastonbury Festival, I heard the familiar voice of Sophie Aldred tell me that I had an amazing tattoo. We chatted for a while about her recent involvement with the show for the Jodie finale before moving on to the subject of who we were planning to see at the festival, Elton John, and who we'd enjoyed at the festival so far. Sadly, I wasn't able to chat as much as I'd like, having lost my voice singing a bit too much at Guns N' Roses the previous night. Such a superb day, and memories I'll never forget. Two of my favourite things all wrapped up in one bundle. And Dave, if you have a look, Simon has sent us a photo. There he is at Glastonbury. There's Sophie. She's loving and Glastonbury this this is a real event people it actually happened we have the photographic proof so cool so cool a tweet from Adam Wilmus at Wilmus 87 to me I think Doctor Who is special because of the Doctor's regenerations I love how they can be similar but definitely having their own feel I started watching in 2005 and was instantly hooked but one thing about me is that I have 11 remote control Daleks, including this big one nicknamed Bob. <laughs> and he, he poses a picture of that on Twitter as well. Very nice uh, remote control there, Adam. Fantastic. And finally for this section, Will Hadcroft at Hadcroft Will on Twitter says to us, Age 11, I saw the second Doctor, Jamie and Zoe, for the first time as part of the Five Faces season in 1981. I saw them again in 1985 when their first VHS came out. It was a joy to see them in the Five Doctors. Now I've written a BBC audiobook featuring them. A dream come true. That's fantastic. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's not a rare story in Doctor Who, which I think is so cool about Doctor Who, that fans can come up and find their way into doing something with Doctor Who, whether it's actually writing a story or maybe producing an audio or doing music for a story or being an actor in the background or whatever it might be. Fans find their way into Doctor Who and it's fantastic. It really, really is. Now, Rob, when we left our heroes, I was about to get really into fandom and you were on the way out. So (laughs) tell us about what were for the show and it seems for yourself, the wilderness years. Well, Dave, I'd like to, but I have an audio I think we should play at this point. Oh, let's do that. Yeah, we have an audio here from Oscar Groucho's. Hit it, Oscar. Okay, so Rob and Dave, very nice to meet your virtual, albeit audio acquaintance. Child of the Wilderness here, back about, gosh, 30 years ago, 1993, the maestro that is Alan Yentob decided he was going to do a Friday night repeat season on BBC Two. I came to it a little bit late. I came in with the demons. And although it's quite atypical as a story, it was actually my proper first introduction to Who. And you know, I was spoiled after that. You know, I had Genesis, Caves, Revelation and Battlefield. And Battlefield, quite interestingly, chimed a memory with me. Uh, and I vividly remember seeing Morgane's cast blow up on first transmission in 89. And bear in mind, I was a child of the Tim Burton Batman era. You know, so it took a lot to kind of jolt me from the combined might of Keaton and Nicholson. 
But I remember that, and I thought, geez, you know, this is this is something I've kind of encountered before. Anyway, so I kind of went through a bit of a treasure trove and discovered all the Peter Hainan's book, 25 Glorious Years, Time Traveller's Guide. Went through all of those, devoured them, absolutely devoured them, and then got to a point where, like most insatiable children in terms of, you know, gathering and festering knowledge, I thought, why are they not making this anymore? So, in my youthful folly, I wrote to the controller of BBC One. Uh, I think Yentop had gone past by this point, or it might have been at Underlin. Anyway, we digress. So I wrote to them and suggested they bring Doctor Who back, and I was delighted when they told me they were doing a co-project with BBC Enterprises called Lost in the Dark Dimension, and I should look out for it, and it would be bringing back all my old favourites. It didn't quite come to pass, but a couple of years later, Mr. Philip Seagal reignited my interest again with the TV movie. Uh, And then, you know, as life does, life moves on. You grow up, you grow old, the odd grey hair sprouts, a bit of nose hair. And I rediscovered who, in the latter part of the 90s, early 2000s, with the Eighth Doctor novels... And that kind of kept it me alive uh, and my interest in the in the show as a concept until it came back in 2005 and I'm a big fan of Russell T Davis specifically for his work on a little remembered ITV show called The Grand. Yeah, I mean, it was everything I could have expected and I've dipped in and out of it. For me, Doctor Who's a little bit like a football team. I kind of, I'll go back and forth. I'm a fan of certain years. I can take or leave other ones, but I always support it and I'll always cheer it on Because there is really, as we all know, nothing like it on television. Nothing like it in the cultural sphere. Boys, I've rumbled down too long. I'll hand back over to you. Happy 60th, lads. Well, isn't that lovely? It is. You know, as as a child of the wilderness years there, Oscar's talking about, you know, catching shows on repeat and getting a taste for it. He got into the Haining books too, which we both think are really important. And he wondered why the show was cancelled, wrote to the BBC. All this stuff he was talking about there, I, I could relate to in some way, even if I hadn't done particular things like written to the BBC to ask why the show was cancelled. Even down to discovering the Eighth Doctor novels and getting into those. Again, that's something I did, you know. So Oscar's wilderness years were very much like mine, actually. Yeah, so very different to mine because I was just becoming a teenager and so really entering what should have been my prime fandom years, except, of course, there was no show. But I do remember the announcement of the new adventures coming. In fact, I remember not even seeing it in a magazine or a fanzine. I remember reading that famous Peter Darville Evans little postscript at the end of the survival novel saying, this is the last Doctor Who story, but don't worry, we're going to continue. We're going to write our own stories. And the anticipation of waiting for those first new adventures to come is something I certainly remember very well. The the regular trips down to Eastland Shopping Centre and Collins Booksellers looking to see if the new one had come in that day was Mm. was very important. Much like the regular trips to the library to see if my copy of the Doctor Who magazine had sort of come in. You know, it's been about four weeks. Well, could be today, could be tomorrow. (laughs) And, you know, having to go to that little file cabinet, look for your little file and see if they put one aside for you. All very, very primitive. As I've said before, the, the new adventures and also the missing adventures, which we really shouldn't, neglect because they were pretty awesome in their own way but these books did fill the slot in my time in fandom what what should have been my sort of prime watching years became my prime reading years and I do remember struggling with some and and, and less so with others I remember reading Timeworm Genesis and some of the nudity and some of the sex (sighs) not going over my head I was sort of conceptually aware but not really appreciating 
or mm. understanding it either. But of course, something like Terence Dix's Exodus was fantastic. Nightshade, Higher Science, you know, they all resonated. There are definitely books that I've reread now that I appreciate a lot more as a fan, um, being you know just older and understanding them. There are also books, mm. particularly the Cartmel ones, that I've probably missed twice because um. As a, as a 14, 15-year-old, I didn't really get what Andrew Cartman was going for. And now I read them, I just go, wow, this is so nice. It's a little bit, little bit sad. <laughs> um, so I kind of, kind of probably missed them at both sides. But, but they really were, you know, for me at 13, 14, 15, what people watching the Tom Baker years were for people sort of 10, 15 years older than me. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And I'll talk about the new adventures in a moment because I've just built up the fact in our last segment that I went missing in the wilderness years, at least at the start of the wilderness years. And it's really brought home to me that in 1991, late 91, I went to the UK uh, on my own. Well, it was with a schoolmate, but we didn't have any you know, adults with us. And we went to places like Forbidden Planet and, you know, checked out all that stuff. And I was mostly buying non-Doctor Who stuff at these shops. I did buy a Daypole Seventh Doctor and Ace, but it was more of a curio, something that was reminding me of my childhood, in quotation marks. This is how you think when you're 16. It's like, oh yeah, this stuff that happened five years ago, four or five years ago, it's my childhood, you know? And so I bought these Daypole figures almost ironically, and I saw the new adventures on the shelves, because yeah, this is late 91, so it would have been the first... I guess the first one or first two that had come out at that point. Yeah, it would have been, absolutely. Yeah, and I just looked at them and thought, no, this isn't Doctor Who. If it's not been on TV or adapted from something that was on TV, it's not real. This this is ridiculous. So I was in this very dismissive, very weird sort of phase. And it's weird because Kate Orman would soon after write a um, new adventure novel and Kate was someone I knew very well back in 88 and 89 you know when she was writing for all of our fanzines and all of that sort of stuff even the fact i knew someone who was writing a new adventure didn't get me into the new adventures so the new adventures were just went over my head at that point and if i can go on a little bit more 93 94 95 i was at university so i wasn't really thinking about doctor who in in those years where you you know you're turning 18 19 20 you're thinking about having sex and you're thinking about getting another drink in at the bar at the uni and, and basically being a dickhead, you know, you're not thinking about Doctor Who. But then by 96, the TV movie came along. And maybe I'll stop there because you might want to talk about the TV movie too. Yeah, well, a couple of things before we get there because we are still in the wilderness years. I should mention that in 91, I also went to the UK. I was with my parents though, I was 11. Right. Uh, and we, we did go to the Doctor Who exhibition at... Um, at Momi in London. We did go to the one in Klingolan, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And, and I did buy a Daypol Dalek there. So yes, likewise. I should also mention as well that I did continue reading the new adventures right throughout. And the thing that I really thank them for isn't just the enjoyment they gave me, but they were my gateway drug into reading fiction. Mm. Whether it's the Timothy Zahn Star Wars books and then on to other books, the Star Trek pocket books, the Red Dwarf novels, all, all those sort of things were really sort of opened up to me via the new adventures so they they were really important in that way i, I need to remember tomb being found and seeing that announced in a in, in an edition of sonic screwdriver the local club fanzine and then going and sitting in the in the in a room at a child care center they'd hide for the day to, to show tomb to a packed audience full of fans and seeing that for the first time that was exciting i saw ice warriors for the first time at a 
Doctor Who event. Um, I do need to mention here, though, fan productions. Now, Rob, you were, you were in and out of fandom in the wilderness years. Did you catch the Stranger series at all? Not at the time, no. I, I, ca- I caught up with them later. I, I own a couple on DVD. There was a, as I recall, a sci-fi store get, must have been going out of business or something. They're flogging them off cheap. And I've, I bought a couple of them on DVD and I watched them. I thought, good God, these are shocking. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, but shocking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so th- for, for those who aren't aware, Bill Baggs made these sort of straight to video director video movies i think is probably the best way to describe them in which mm. an actor called colin baker played a mysterious stranger that nobody <laughs> really knew about and he, he hung out with a young lady played by um, nicola bryant and, and she was called miss brown she I was think, called miss brown that's right um you know <laughs> they they fought you know evil villains like michael wisher and um bumped into sophie aldred so it, it really was sort of you know a desperate attempt at filling the Doctor Who-sized void in all our lives. Look, I agree, the strange ones you look back, look back now, they're, they're, they're not great. They were sort of intriguing at the time, but they're not great. Um, There's Own Solution, which had Pertwee, Davo, Colin and McCoy. That was pretty good. It was nice to see Pertwee sort of, you know, that one more time. Um, mm. Although, again, it just you just have to watch the script. You go, wow, this was made in about 1993. It's yeah. just so obvious. <laughs> My favourite of the range, though, was Shakedown, that was written by Terence Dix, had the Santarans and uh, Jan Chappell, uh, Brian Croucher, Michael Wisher, uh, Caroline Ford, Sophie Aldred. So, you know, that this sort of idea of getting Doctor Who actors or Blake Seven actors and putting them in a script with monsters was, you know, very interesting. And, and people worked out that Terence Dix owns the rights to this thing or Robert Holmes owns the rights to this thing and Terence is a mate, so we can ask the estate mm. or we can get the rights to the Yeti so we can make downtime without actually getting the rights to Doctor Who. So all these sort of workarounds happened. Some of them were terrible. Um, I remember famously at a club meeting, and by now I was very much involved in running the local club, we, we put on, uh, we did a screening of the video Mind Games 2, now, there were some people in our club who would rock up once a month on a Saturday at Melbourne Uni and they would watch whatever we put on the video room. They just wanted to watch Doctor Who. Right. Five minutes into Mind Games 2 and that room was empty. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, there were some great things there. There were some great meetings. I was getting more involved. But that does bring us up to 96, Rob. Tell us about the telemovie and Rob Irwin. Yeah. I mean, in 96, as, as you've introduced, we had the TV movie. And now that I was a bit older... And a bit more settled, I was post-university, I could sort of lean into it. And by the middle of that following year, uh, 97, we had the EDAs starting to come out. And suddenly, you know, I had this rekindled interest in Doctor Who and suddenly there was this novel series that could become mine. Because although I was leaning back into the show before the EDAs started coming out, I felt the NAs weren't for me. I'd missed the boat. There were just too many of them. But now with a new Doctor, and a new Doctor who I thought was pretty cool, even if his story wasn't so good, I thought the character of the Doctor was cool. I thought, I'd really like to read about this guy in novels. And I started reading the the EDAs in maybe the same way you read the NAs. Yeah, so the, the telemovie came along. I was 15, 16 in the build-up to that. I was actively involved in the club. So I was following along in DWM with all the news and the casting and what was going on. I knew who Paul McGann was because I'd seen The Hanging Gale. And again, that that being Australian kind of struck because we all wanted to watch it and we all had to get copies. And I know Richard, who was the club president at the time, I think had 
three different sources getting him copies so that he would be guaranteed one would arrive the Saturday <laughs> after the screening so we could do our big local, local club screening. Uh, as I've said before, I remember being in year, what was it, 96? I was in year 10 and going to the payphone, you know, at recess and at lunch and after school and, and even between classes, I think a couple of times, and ringing Tim, Tim Anderson from Madman Entertainment and saying, have the, have the Delta Hotel movie videos arrived? No, they're coming, they're coming. It'll be later today, not yet, not yet. And, and then ringing him after school and he said, yep, it's here. And getting on the tram and heading over and it's, it's, it's winter in Melbourne, so it's you know, dark by five o'clock and the mist is coming in and there's a chilly wind <laughs> and all wrapped up. And then you see this, this huddle of fans outside this warehouse all queued up and you sort of worked our way up the stairs and I probably knew half the people in that queue and so we're all chatting. And the queue, I mean, I mean, literally the queue was down the steps and out the door and around the block sort of thing. And just, you know, you worked your way through this queue, all shivering, all cold in the dark and eventually got into the warehouse and up the stairs and there was Tim, you know, this six foot five giant with a packing crate, you know, a big wooden packing crate, just pulling tapes of the telly movie out taking everybody's 40 bucks and just all of us running away he, he must have done thousands of you know just just because the queue was literally around the block yeah literally yeah. around the block getting home later that night because i had debating that night so i had to go back to school and debate and then getting home about nine o'clock and sort of watching the first half and as the that orchestral swell happened and, and the doctor who theme was being played really feeling the emotion of the moment just going wow i'm watching Doctor Who in that first half with McCoy and the regeneration and the first part of began. I thought this was absolutely brilliant. But, you know, I was a school kid. I had to stop, so I stopped halfway. And then um, went to school the next day and got home and watched the second half. And, oh, dear. Mm, yeah. Grace! <laughs> Isn't that interesting that when you first saw it, you, th- you thought that first half was really good. But now it's the first half where if we sit down as fans and discuss it, we say, oh, McCoy shouldn't be in this at all. We should just start with McGann, you know. And yet that was the bit that at the time you thought was great. Yeah, it was made for people who were fans and genuinely believed that McCoy was hard done by because Colin wasn't there for the regen and all of that. And they thought, well, we have to do it properly. McCoy said, I will be there and and all the rest of it. So, yes, look, it, it was a mistake for the casual viewer, but it was made for us. And so it resonated. But, look, I remember that that infamous article in DWM sort of the month after it aired which had this big spread with sort of bottles of spilt wine and you know some fairly pathetic sort of post-party streamers sitting there and this article sort of saying what happens now and that was the feeling around all of fandom you know we'd spent seven years waiting for the show to come back because we we spent the first three of those not knowing it had been cancelled it was just delayed yeah. And, yeah. until they sort of like yeah yeah look we're, we're actually not making season 27 it took them several years to admit that so we sort of went from oh there's a series coming oh maybe it's gonna be different or verity lamb's gonna make it or stephen spielberg's gonna make it oh no no no, no. we went through all of that it was made and it was very clear that you know it's got merit but it wasn't great it mm. certainly wasn't being picked up for a series and it was sort of the sense of what happens now. And for myself, I was 16 going on 17. And as you say, discovering all the things that 17-year-olds discover. And, mm. and I think also those of us who were running the club at the time, you know, myself, Richard, Hardon, Mad Dog, Victor, <laughs> um, Dorian, you know, the, the Dr. Deans, you know, this, this crowd had kind of realised that running club meetings was becoming a bit of a chore and what yeah. we really wanted was to get the club meeting over with so we could all go down the street to, you know, all you can eat all night, Pizza Hut or the pub or whatever it might be, and yeah. just hang. 
And at some point, not long after the telemover, we kind of realized, well, we could do the second bit without the first bit. So yeah. maybe it was time to hand the club on to other people and sort of move on with our lives. And that didn't stop us, you know, going to the pub every second week. And, um, you know, my, my introduction to pub life was via my Doctor Who friends uh, at the Dickens. And, um, wow, what an introduction. <laughs> Fantastic. That's great. So, Rob, I think it's time for some more listener memories. And you're going to kick us off with our good friend, Neela's. Yes, Neelas from Carrick Fergus, Northern Ireland, has written in Hello Neelas. He says, oh my giddy aunt, the 60th is almost upon us and what an exciting time to be a Doctor Who fan. It feels like there's a fresh buzz right now and isn't that fantastic? For me, Doctor Who is so special for a number of reasons. It's one of those shows that even if you're not a fan, you'll still have some kind of memory of, whether it's the fourth Doctor and the scarf, canine, Daleks or whatnot. It's impossible to not have at least caught a glimpse of the show. It's an institution. Let's reverse the polarity of the neutron flow now and go back to the beginning. They often say your first Doctor is your Doctor. I was born in 1988, so I was one when the show was unfortunately cancelled. However, BBC Two did repeats in the early 90s and this, along with my dad's VHS tapes, was my entry into Doctor Who. I'll never forget seeing the Sea Devils aged four. It was terrifying. To this day, it's still my all-time favourite story. And this ties in with my original point. At that time, they were showing the John Pertwee era. He's my favourite Doctor. For me, it's the golden era of Doctor Who. I'll also never forget picking my first ever VHS in the Virgin Megastore in Belfast, Revenge of the Cybermen, and it remains my favourite fourth Doctor story. It's the little things, eh? You could write a book about the show, but I'll stop now before this email turns into the flame of utter boredom. Really looking forward to the 60th. I'm sure there'll be a few surprises, and I'm not ruling out appearances of other Doctors. Here's hoping anyway. Enjoy the celebrations, guys. Geronimo from Neela's, who is Neela C on Twitter, Carrick Fergus, Northern Ireland. That's fantastic. And, you know, when we talk about the UK and Australia and, and the US, we, we do forget, you know, some of those other countries, New Zealand and, and also Ireland, including Northern Ireland, which I, I, know, I know it's part of Britain, but there's a, there's a bit of sea mm. between them. And um, it probably was a different experience again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. From Stu Gutteridge via Facebook, another regular contributor. Thank you, Stu. Doctor Who is part of my life. I grew up with it, makes me laugh, makes me cry, brings me comfort, brings me joy, and it's brought me friends both online and in real life from all over. Doctor Who is and always will be my greatest passion. Nice. I've got a short one here from Loza Ria, who is Loza Ria on uh, Twitter. He says, back in the 70s, when I was about four years old, I discovered that if you got off your ass and pressed a button on the telly, you could watch something else. I have a memory of doing that and seeing the doctor for the first time running down a corridor. It's now my comfort blanket. It's a nice first memory. That's fantastic. So, Rob, we'll get into what we've called the return. Mm. Now... It's a return, I guess, both for the show and for me in fandom. The The last sort of really big thing that I was doing before I dropped out of fandom was helping to run and attend conventions. And look, we've done episodes about those, so I'm not going to tell all these convention anecdotes again, but being part of the committee with Richard that put together Time Storm and brought Sophie Alder to Australia in 97 was a big deal. And then we'll go on these trips to Sydney. And, and look, by this stage, we were very open about it. The, the, the Doctor Who conventions 
were an excuse for a bunch of mates to go to Sydney, uh, would spend the day at the convention, would meet these actors, and then would get ridiculously, insanely drunk in the evenings. <laughs> um, one of them involved me vomiting off a third-story hotel balcony into the car park. And, Fabulous. Um, I didn't know that Vomit Splash could go that far, but there you go. Um, so, yeah, look, look, Doctor Who fandom is... Um, very closely linked with a lot of very formative adult memories um, and you know, some really good mates. So that's that's great. But yeah, look, as I, as I did finish high school, my friends were moving on from fandom. The show was kind of moving on. And yeah, I was going to university. I was doing other things. The New Adventures had wrapped up. I, I read a few of the BBC books, but but yeah, like you, like, like you at uni, like I think a lot of fans at uni, I was going through that. But I was kept in touch with the show through this group of mates. You know, we were all mates. We would hang out at the pub. We'd get drunk. We'd go on trips. It was it was just good fun. And we'll, we'll talk about other stuff. You know, we'll go see the latest Star Trek movie or we'll go see Star Wars or whatever the case may be. And then when they started to tell me, you know, there's, there's this show coming back. There's the guy who wrote Queer as Folk is, is doing it. And I think I was, the, I was the only one in our circle of friends who had actually seen Queer as Folk. And... Um, I, I did when they all were sort of around at my place one afternoon. I did pull out the tape and showed them the the scene from Queer as Folk where uh, one of the lads brings somebody home from um, a nightclub. And when this guy sees he has a copy of Genesis of the Daleks on the shelf, he's like, oh, forget about the bedroom. I want to watch Genesis of the Daleks. So um, <laughs> and, and sort of I, I showed them that, that tape. But I was very sceptical. I was like, oh, we've heard all the rumours and it went through seven years of rumours and all we got was a telly movie and blah, 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 blah. And then it sort of started to become very real very quickly. Uh, I remember them casting Christopher Eccleston and, and we'd just been around at um, Mad Dog Morgan's house a few weeks earlier when he'd showed us this movie with Christopher Eccleston where he plays this absolutely terrifying psycho. And it was like, hey, you know that guy in that movie we thought was awesome last week? He's the new Doctor. And um, so that was really interesting. They cast Billy Piper, all like, who? Although the, the, the young lady that Richard was dating, who is now his wife, said, oh, I know who she is. She's a pop star. And we've all gone, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and then, then suddenly the show was back and none of us were involved in fandom. Interesting. I was living a life in the early 2000s where... As I said, I was back into Who, particularly reading the EDAs, which continued into the early 2000s, which is obviously a hugely niche thing to be doing. I mean, Who was reading the EDAs then? So, yes, I was back in fandom. But I wasn't engaging with fandom that much, particularly at a local level. Like, I'd go on news net groups sometimes about the books and talk about that, but even that dropped off after a while. So I learned pretty late that the show was coming back. I think it must have been the second half of 2004 maybe even late 2004 you know it's late 2004 and the show's back at easter you know in a few months time yeah so i sort of found out about that very late and my first thought was that i needed to go and buy all the old merchandise i'd never bothered with because i had this feeling that it was going to skyrocket in price so i remember i got a couple of like hartnell era annuals the invasion from space one and the first proper Hartnell annual and all that. I think they're about 30 or 40 bucks each. And I'm glad I did because they're a lot more expensive now. I tell you what. And then it was time for the show to come back. It was Easter of 2005. So Dave, shall we talk about actually seeing the show come back? Yeah. So look, we knew the show was coming. I don't think any of us had really turned our mind to how we were going to watch it. Um, we knew Torrance existed. Um, I used to get some very bad Torrance of shows like The West Wing and Buffy and Roswell. Very, very bad quality. 
Um, but then out of the blue one day, a, a friend of ours who worked for a telco and had a really good internet account was able to get that illicit early copy of Rose weeks before it was shown in the UK. Just It was available for a few hours sort of floating around sort of some of the more um, private user groups. And he got this copy. And so I got this text message that I still remember getting that, that said, Code 7R, have copy of new Doctor Who episode, my place 2pm for viewing. <laughs> um, and I was sort of the other side of the city at the time and said, oh, look, I, I can't be there for two. I'll be there maybe about three. Yeah. Rushed, you know, tried to finish what I was doing and rushed across the city, got there. I sort of burst in and they said, Dave, sorry, you're an hour late. We've watched it. But it's really good. We're going to watch it again. Come sit down. Uh, so, so I do remember watching that with that same group of fans that I'd sort of been hanging out with for a long time. And, and then at that stage, I was um, I had a flatmate, one of, one of the guys I met on the committee, Andrew. He was doing his um, doctorate in oncology at the time, and um, so we were we were housemates in in, in Royal Park. And um, yeah, I, I can remember a sort of in that first series someone would get up you know, early on a Sunday morning, set the torrent going about 7 o'clock so that by about 10.30 it would have downloaded the episode <laughs> and we'll sit there in our you know, dressing gowns and sort of you know, watch Doctor Who. And it was, all, it was all very new and very exciting. But I do remember those first five episodes not thinking they were bad, but thinking they weren't for me. I thought they were a little mm. bit too light, a little bit too soap opery. The humour wasn't really my sense of humour. And I was very close to going, look, this is a very well-made show. I'm glad, glad it's got an audience. I'm not sure it's really for me. Then I watched Dalek and I was hooked. I went through, and, and just the episodes after that, you know, Father's Day, uh, mm. The Doctor Dances, Empty Child, just brilliant episodes. Still now, some of my favourite run of episodes from the new series. And most of all, I can remember watching Bad Wolf for the first time and the build-up, seeing those circle sort of motifs on the fa- on the on the wallpaper and thinking they look like Dalek spheres. Then then you hear the bom 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 bom, yeah. and you think, oh my god, it's like the Dalek, and oh, the controllers sort of put up like the the, the Dalek Emperor was in Evil of the Dalek. Oh my god, and, and sort of putting it all together, and it, all, it was all built up and that wonderful build-up to the thing, and, and then the the credits roll and they do the next time, and you're like, how did this happen? What what's going on? And just that. They survived through me. And the yeah. next week of who did they survive through? Is that Davros? Is that the Emperor Dalek? Is that Adam? You know? Is it the little girl from Remembrance of the Dalek? Yeah, just, 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 <laughs> I've never been quite as hooked into the new series as I was for that first one when it was just so new and exciting. And we had to really sort of not scramble and work, but we had to make an effort to watch it here. Yeah, you mentioned having trouble torrenting and, and such these things. And that's true. Back in 2005, it was still kind of an arcane sort of technology to sort of get your head around. Yeah. Uh, and, a, and a lot of people didn't have, not even broadband, not even sort of ADSL 2 sort of connections. No, you know, I, I was so. on basic ADSL at the time and that was pretty new. Yeah, yeah. So I actually met a guy on a UK Doctor Who forum, very friendly bloke, just must have wanted to do his part for fandom. And he offered to burn each week's story plus the confidential episode onto a a DVD-R that could just be played in a DVD player, didn't even have to put it in the computer. It could actually just go into the DVD and, and play. And he did that for every story that season. And 
didn't didn't charge me for it or anything. It was just his pleasure to do it. Extraordinary. Uh, at the end of that season, I, I sent him uh, a gift to, to thank him for it and such. And I look back on that now, I think how extraordinary that was. So I was seeing the stories oh, probably a week and a half after they were airing in the UK, up to about two weeks after they'd air in the UK. And I was really taken with it. Uh, like you, it wasn't really until the middle of the season that I really got into it. But from the first episode, I could see that, oh, look, Doctor Who now has modern stories. It's a modern look. It's not super creaky and old looking. And that excited me, even if I wasn't particularly loving the episodes. I didn't know that episodes were coming that I was going to really, really love. So I was just sort of enjoying it, but not in love with it. And it was this old show that felt like hardly anyone else had ever liked um, and I know there was the local club and all of that, but, you know, relatively, it just wasn't a cultural thing in Australia, um, even back in the late 80s and certainly not in the 90s and early noughties. And, and this thing was back. And there was me who had come back in the fandom and stuck with the EDAs. And when it really took off, I couldn't believe it. You know, merchandise in every store, action figures. I mean, action figures, Doctor Who action figures, what? You know, and, and normies talking about it. It was just a crazy time. I loved it. it. It was. It was just absolutely incredible. And then the ABC suddenly realised that if they put the episodes up on iView, it's sort of five o'clock in the morning when they were showing in the UK, people wouldn't stream, wouldn't torrent it. They'll watch it themselves on, on the yeah. ABC. So it suddenly became very easy to watch. And, and, you know, there were good episodes, there were bad episodes, but... The thing that I remember most is as soon as we'd watch those episodes, getting onto emails and sending around that group email to all the Doctor Who mates and saying, what did you think? It's what I thought. And, and it still was that shared fan experience, which brings me to the last memory I want before we start to look to the future in our next segment. Mm -hmm. I can remember going back to... 2013, maybe late 2012, early 2013. And all of this group of Melbourne-based Doctor Who friends were all sort of at that point in our careers where we were just starting out and we were um, senior enough that we all had our own desks and our own computers, but junior enough that nobody really kept an eye on what we were doing and we had a bit of <laughs> spare time. So a lot of our time was spent just sending around group emails to each other about you know, whatever we wanted to talk about. And I can remember one coming from, I think it was Mark, who said, does anybody here listen to Doctor Who podcasts? And most of us said, no, not really aware of what a podcast is. I, I think the ABC does something, not sure. And mm. Rob, though, said, yes, I'm quite interested. And then there was this sort of exchange in the group emails about, I think there's a place in the market for a more conversational podcast that doesn't talk about big finish and isn't just reviews. It's just people having a chat. And they, Rob said, yes, I think that's really right. Let's talk offline. And that became the first podcast I ever heard of, which was 42 to Doomsday. Mm -hmm. At the same time, at the start of 2013, a couple of friends of Richard's had decided they were going to put on these sort of very Melbourne-style sort of fringe show events. Uh, and these were the guys called Splintered Chaps, where a couple of them would get together and you'd go to one of those little sort of venues under a pub somewhere in hipster Melbourne. And they put on a live show where they'll talk about a particular doctor. There'll be a musical number. There'll be a guest. And it was all live audiences. And that got turned into a podcast. And I didn't go to the first one, the Hartnell one, but Richard said to me, oh, I went to that one. It was really fun. Um, it's 10 bucks. Come along to the Troughton one. And so I went along to the Troughton one. It was really entertaining, really fun. It was a good, good sort of, you know, as I say, a fringe festival type sort of thing. 
And then I was curious to find out how this sounded on audio. So to listen to that, I got my first ever podcast app on my phone. And from there, a whole (laughs) world has opened. I guested on the early episodes of 42 to Doomsday where they were just trying to fill time. I think Richard and I wrote all of the letters to 42 and Doomsday under various different names for about the first six episodes until they <laughs> till they built up an audience. And then uh, then this guy called Rob said, I really like what you're doing. Um, do you want a guest on my podcast? And I said, mm-hmm. sure. And we kind of clicked. We kind of had a good conversation. And a couple of months later, this Rob guy said, I want to revamp the podcast. I want co-host. Are you keen? Yeah. And I was I was very serious, like, well, we should probably give me a call to discuss what you have in mind. And you're like, I don't really have a plan. I just thought, you know, we we chill, we'll chat, we'll just see how it goes. I'm like, okay. And here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Here we are almost at the end of our eighth year. Wow. Know? Yes. <laughs> but we will get onto a bit more of that later. We've got some, some uh, fan comments here to go with our return section. Absolutely. So this one is from Stephen Godfrey of Regent's Park in Sydney. Hi, Robin Dave. Instead of going into every detail of my love for the show, I'll tell you guys a tale of how I started. My love for who came when one day at Roseland Shopping Centre in the summer of 1970-1980, my parents took my brother and I to see a live appearance. I remember being very excited and was only four and a half at the time. I remember on the centre stage was a Dalek prop or a cutout and, of course, a TARDIS and then the announcement on the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Tom Baker. As typical Aussies, we were all in our singlets, shorts and thongs, sweating it out in a non-air-conditioned complex. And there is Tom Baker, all dressed in full costume with scarf. Oh, wow. Wow. I don't remember the things Tom talked about, but afterward there was a table signing and my parents took my brother and I to the table. I had Genesis of the Daleks on LP, which I still have at home, and Tom also signed posters for us, which unfortunately are long gone. Sad face. As Tom was signing my brother's poster, he asked my brother how old he was, and he said six. And this is the funny part. Tom writes my brother's name and then went to write his age, but wrote 666, laugh out loud. My dad says to Tom, do you know what you just wrote? And Tom, in surprise, goes, oh my goodness, laugh out loud. (laughs) Not sure if he wrote out a new one. This moment meeting a doctor at a young age got me into the show, but my brother didn't really follow into it. I started conventions in 1993 with Whovention, and now I've seen five doctors in person, a few multiple times now, plus companions making new friends of fellow fans. I still have a strong love for classic over new Who. Nothing can beat the writing of classic when special effects were pushed to their limits and the atmosphere of the Hinchcliffe years are some of the show's finest. My one and only regret was that I never got to meet John when the DWCA had him in the 80s. Happy 60th in the TARDIS. Thanks, Steve Godfrey of Regent's Park. What a wonderful set of memories there. And, and yes, look, Meeting doctors is a really important part and really exciting part of being a fan. I, I can remember when I'd finally met doctors five, six, seven, and eight, thinking, well, that's it. You know, I'm not going to meet Tom. He's not going to come to Australia again. And the others have passed away. And the new, I'm not never going to see new doctors. That's not going to happen. But, but now I've seen Capaldi and I've seen Eccleston. Yeah. And um, that's, that's incredibly exciting. 
Yeah. Isn't it great to have memories from young ages where they're, they're sort of fragmented? And he remembers Tom writing 666 <laughs> on his brother's poster. Like, that's just a bizarre thing. But in your in your mind, you, you, you don't have any other sort of bits to sort of add to it. So it just stays there as this bizarre little story. I, I love hearing that. And also thinking about Tom in his full costume in what was probably a Sydney summer. And I'm reminded of when Davo came out to do the Maya tour. And you look at all the photos of that in the... Um, the Zorinza fanzine of the time and he's he's in full gear you know so the heavy coat the cricket jumper again he's in a Queensland summer for some of that it's insane yes <laughs> yes yeah anyway we've got some short comments here this is Nathan of Cartoon he tweets at the Daily Crumb he says I don't understand humans so I relate to the doctor also I love magic rooms such as the TARDIS that's fantastic Mm. Uh, at MattBS31 says Hi guys, always love the show On fandom, my first memory was watching Robot clutching a Dalek toy So I've been around the block a bit Best moment, the regeneration in Legopolis Blew the ten year old me away I remember the wait for the next episode It felt like an eternity Gosh, we've come full circle on Mark Cockrum's email there Talking about Legopolis Yeah Chance Fines, who is at Shelf Life 74, is replying to that previous tweet. And he says, I can certainly relate to a great deal of that. Likewise, that purple-spined copy of Doctor Who and the Daleks was my very first target, too. Merchandise was certainly thin on the ground in those days, of course. Thank you for all those segments. Rob, we're sort of getting closer to the end of our episode. So now we've got some more abstract segments to talk about. And the first is... Why do we like the show? Rob, Mm. why do you like Doctor Who? Dave, I've always been a history buff. So the idea of going places in an historical sense, not just on Earth, but seeing things on other planets historically and, and knowing that the Doctor could go to different times on the same alien planet, that always seemed like a cool thing to me. I guess it's the idea of having a time machine in general and being able to see the same location at different times always seemed quite cool to me but I was also a sci-fi buff in general so that angle always appealed especially when they did the harder sci-fi stories because I was really a boy's own adventure type I still am those are aspects of the show I've liked over time and the other aspect of the show that I've really liked over time is that the show changes from era to era you you get a sense of this when you first dip into it we talked about getting the Haining reference books and and reading Doctor Who magazine and you know articles discussing something that happened 10 years earlier you know when you were barely alive at the time and you think oh my god there's a whole history here and so you get this sense that the show changes but once you start living through it and once you start living through an era you don't particularly like or maybe that you do particularly like and then the next era you don't particularly like or there's an actor you don't like or whatever you realize you can build up the fortitude to just sit these things out you know you'll still be around as a fan long after the thing that annoys you is gone and i think that's something that's really enjoyable about the show that it's always changing look i think that's very true. I, I don't have a particularly original or profound answer to the question, why do I like Doctor Who? It's certainly true that it sits very naturally on my shelf of DVDs behind me with other shows. Blake Seven, Red Dwarf, I, Claudius, Rumpole, The West Wing, Buffy. These are all stories which are focused on the writing 
And I think that's one thing that's always appealed to me about Doctor Who is that real sense of character and script having to lift a production and, and being taken so seriously. But one of the reasons why I grew to love particularly the Hartnell years is that feeling that back then they were almost writing plays for television. And the yeah. writing feels like that. I've talked about Marco Polo, which is a favourite of mine. It's a 10 out of 10 story. And it it feels poetic. It feels lyrical listening to that dialogue. And I, and I really love that. I like the wit of some of the writers, your Holmeses, your, your Bouchers. I, I love the insight and the profound nature of scripts by Malcolm Hulk. Um, and I love the, just the, the sense of adventure and that's, that's really important that, as you said, you can go anywhere, do anything. It's a new adventure every, every episode, or it's a new style every era. But it's also, I think, worth noting that, that just as Doctor Who dovetails in with other types of TV I like, it, it does sit very well with things that pique my interest. Dinosaurs, astrology, as a kid, were things that were sort of a big part of me. And Doctor Who's out in space and battling dinosaurs and mysteries. You know, I was always fascinated by those sort of things. But but yes, my my big passion in 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 life, in terms of you know what I've studied, is history. And you know, Rob, that I've I've sort of made it a point of mm. going to the settings of all these sixties historicals, and I've ticked most of them off. I still need a tombstone and. Um, China or, or the, the you know Peking, um, you know, so I'm not far off. But you know I've I've been to places like Troy and Paris and, and the like, and, and and seen these things. So so Doctor Who has dovetailed in with my own interests and and, and also science. I, I think it was very natural for a young kid of sort of our gen, our generation to go from watching the latest David Attenborough series to watching Doctor Who because we were people who liked learning and discovering mm-hmm. and exploring. And and I think that that is all part of what Doctor Who is. At the end of the day, though, it's just really good television. At its yeah. best, it's just such well-written television. And I find it amazing that when we do our deep dives into seasons and and. And Doctor Who goes from being a thing that's very familiar that I sort of put on often in the background or when I'm multi-screening and it's like, okay. And I can go, no, 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 I'm going to watch this for the podcast. I'm going to put the new DVD on or the Blu-ray on and watch it. And after 40 years of viewing, I'm still finding new stuff or being inspired by stuff or laughing at the jokes. And and I think it's just very well-written TV. Yeah, well said, well said. Would you like to kick us off with our next segment of listener feedback, Rob? I will, Dave. This comes from JWC Reviews at JWC Reviews, who lives in Ireland. We have a lot of uh, listeners in Ireland, don't we, Dave? Yeah, that's fantastic. Lovely country. Yeah, yeah. He says, All right, guys. I started watching Who in 1970, and I really believe it changed my life and possibly saved my life. I was four in 1970 and lived in Belfast when the Troubles broke out. Unfortunately for me, I lived in the very epicentre of the conflict. It was shit. There were bombs going off, sniper and machine gun attacks against the British soldiers patrolling the streets. It was a very violent and very scary time. The bloodshed was enormous. Lots of stuff was going on, and it was far from uncommon for kids my age and under to be out on the streets chucking rocks at armoured cars while bullets whistled around us. I remember seeing a bullet going through a stone lamppost outside my house. Wow. 
I'll just pause here and say this is very unlike our, our life in Australia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just extraordinary. But, but contemporary. Yeah. Yeah. But in 1970, I watched Spearhead from Space and was bitten by the Doctor Who bug. I just couldn't get enough of it. I read the comics, TV comic, I think it was, and tried to read newspaper and magazine articles about the show. Not only did Doctor Who stop me running around the streets, putting myself and others in danger, it stopped me getting into a poisonous culture of violence that several of my schoolmates later adopted and ended up shot dead or spending 20 years in prison. It also taught me something that those around me never picked up on. That violence achieves nothing but more violence, never changes anything. And from Pertwee and Baker, I learned that there is always another way to resolve problems other than by the use of a gun. Doctor Who did change my life, and if I hadn't sat in front of the TV that Saturday evening in 1970, God knows what would have become of me. Doctor Who is more than a TV show for me. It was a life-affirming experience, and the values it taught me have never let me down, even after all these years. Cheers, guys, from JWC Reviews. Well, that's a just profound experience. Thank you for for sharing that. Um, that that's really amazing. And, and and yes, I can remember as a kid, particularly watching the Pertwee years, those values and ideas did sort of sit there in in the background the idea of kindness the idea of science over not so much religion but but science over superstition Mm. um you know a, a general ecological message a general message that you should strive for peace where you can find it but sometimes you have to um be willing to defend what what you value and these are things that sat underneath wonderful adventures and i look at the ham-fisted way that many many shows now try to do messaging and forget that you need a great adventure first yeah and then you weave the message in and that doctor who was doing that better than most modern television 50 years ago 60 years ago is extraordinary yeah, it, it trusted the audience to be smart and not have to have the character sort of half turn to camera. Yeah, <laughs> and explain what's going on and explain why something is important. You you just knew because it was yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Our next tweet is via Nick H, who says, "I really started being a fan when the twentieth came around, and I purchased the Radio Time special that I still own, as it has all of the history, etc." Then the ABC started showing older stories that had not been shown much before, and I was hooked. Spent every cent on VHS tapes. Yeah, I can I can relate to that. Yep, I think we can all relate to that. <laughs> Simon Pittman at Library Player says, My first memory of Doctor Who was watching the repeats on BBC One in the early 90s, then seeing the McGann movie, which was the first new episode for him. Fantastic. And so now, Dave, we come to the final segment and we've jotted this down as the future, in quotation marks. We can go anywhere here, Dave, and talk about the future of the show, the future of the podcast, whatever. Where do you want to kick off? Look, I'll, I'll make just a couple of brief comments. The, the first is that the thing that has held me to Doctor Who fandom has been the mates. And as I've got more involved over the last 10 years, particularly via the podcast, that network of mates has expanded, and now there are people in... Sydney and Hobart and London and Exeter and Birmingham and you know all over the world that I, I now have met in person or engaged with in on, on, on Twitter and you know there are there are people I regularly engage with on Twitter now that I, I consider friends or I've never met them and so I, I think that 
that will always keep me involved in the show. But beyond that, I'm not really keen to make predictions because I, I said in 2006 that this show was going very well. It would almost certainly get six or seven series, and that would be pretty awesome. And uh, <laughs> and it's obviously gone a lot further than that. And I've I've underestimated its ability to regenerate both the actor and the showrunner and its style. Mm. I, I think that when you ask where Doctor Who will be in the future, you need to ask where television will be in the future. Watch 60s Doctor Who and it's like watching 60s television. You watch the Eric Saywood era in the 80s and it's reflective of 1980s television. You go and watch that first Eccleston series and the way the cameras work, the direction, the style, the humour, it's you could carbon date it to 2005 <laughs> based on all of that. And, and now we've got a show that's very expensive looking, very swish, very polished, and streaming, in our, in our case, on Disney+. Plus. Mm. Um, for the first time this weekend, we're going to see new Who We Understand on Disney+. Plus. And that's because 95% of the other television I watch is expensive and glossy and streaming. So the question of where will Doctor Who be in 10, 20 years' time, I think is not about Doctor Who, but is about television. Interesting, yeah. Earlier you were talking about how you came across podcasts and then got into Doctor Who podcasts and then guested with me on a show and then ended up my co-host and here we are eight years later. So in terms of this podcast, I'd say I'm curious where a few years of regular Doctor Who is going to take us next. The Whitaker era was like five years long, but there was only three series of show to talk about, and one of them was ridiculously short. Yeah. Now we're going back to Doctor Who. You can set your watch by year after year, plus there's going to be spin-offs, we're told. We don't have much info on them, but we're told they're coming. We have so much new content to talk about coming up, Dave, and fit into that narrative of the last 60 years that we like to fit everything into to sort of see the bigger picture that's really exciting and we still haven't got through talking about the classic era so there's always something to say which excites me a lot in general so i think it's good times ahead for the podcast and i think the show itself is entering an exciting new phase you know there's money behind it as as you mentioned nice and glossy you know maybe it's going to try some new things i'm curious to see where this all goes my my expectation is that it will be better written and more coherent than the Whitaker era. So already it's that Doctor Who thing I mentioned earlier of the show taking twists and turns as it goes on. Nothing stays the same. And that's just really exciting to me. It just keeps it so fresh. It's it's great. I remember, Rob, that when we agreed we were going to start doing hot takes and we had a trial run with class and then we went into right. the final Capaldi era, I think it was, was our first set of hot takes. But, but we had an agreement that... If we stopped enjoying the show, we would stop the hot takes because neither of us wanted to do a podcast where we tuned in every week and said, we don't like this. Yeah, it's, it's okay to turn in and say, this wasn't a good episode. I didn't enjoy this. But as long as it's mixed in with, with stuff we enjoy. And so I, I hope that we don't have to stop doing hot takes. I hope we do continue to enjoy the show. The one thing I want from the show is what I've always said all along. And I've said it all my time in the podcast I just want good adventures in time and space. I want the Doctor to go off to other worlds and other times and have adventures with good characters and scary monsters. I'm happy for some themes and ideas to be weaved in with that. I don't want that tail to wag the dog, though. I 
just first and foremost want the Doctor fighting evil monsters in strange planets and strange times. Yeah, well said. And for me, you know, we kicked off this episode with me having some negative comments about that whole Davros thing. That hasn't completely coloured my view of Russell T. Davis. I still think he's the most important thing to happen to, to at least modern Doctor Who, if not Doctor Who in a general sense, as we talked about on that recent episode of The List Makers. So I'm wildly interested going into this series to see what comes up and see what shakes out. No, I'm 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 very excited as well. I'm I'm yeah, I'm excited. Don't need yeah. to qualify that. I'm excited. Yeah, exactly. We've got some more fan comments here uh, to finish up on. Yep, before we wrap up, one last segment of fan comment, and this email is from Ian Gaynor Kirk. I was a five-year-old in Birmingham, and just about the first TV show I remember seeing was Doctor Who. It was Death to the Daleks. The main thing I remember is the scene going through the city. It hooked me, and I remember Planet of the Spiders well, and also crying when John Pertwee regenerated into Tom Baker. I'd just found this wonderful program, and the hero was going away. My dad told me Doctor Who was all about change, and how I'd grow to like the new one. How right he was. Tom is, to this day, my Doctor, and I do not think those first three seasons have ever been surpassed in quality. I also started reading Target novels, The Web of Fear being the first. I love that story. Unlike Australia, we didn't get repeats, so they were our version. I did have trouble with the change to Peter Davison, as he was Tristan Farnan to me, and to be honest, I still associate him more with that role. His era was burdened with the crowded TARDIS, and would have been far better if it had been limited to one or two companions, allowing him to shine more. I kept watching all the way to cancellation, but didn't really like the Colin Baker Sylvester McCoy eras, although on rewatch, some McCoy stories are actually pretty good, but my love and most people's for the show had faded. Mm. The new show has had its ups and downs, but it's kept me watching, and there is much more good than bad in all eras. Love your podcast, listen to it on my Sunday run, and it makes it easier. You're both fair in your comments and actually sound like you enjoy watching the show. (laughs) All the best, Ian Gaynor Kirk. It stuns me that it's unusual that people who host a Doctor Who podcast enjoy the show, but hey, we wouldn't do it if we didn't. I can't imagine doing it if we didn't. Thank you, Ian. We live in a crazy world, though, where it, there's a lot of shows based around hate-watching things and such. <laughs> it's, it's very strange. So true. Uh, I have a comment here from Chris Curtis, who is at xris32 on Twitter. He says, 10-year-old me went to a Doctor Who convention on my own, as nobody in my family went. I had no idea what to wear, so I wore a suit. Everybody made such a fuss over me about wearing a suit. And Chris has provided a picture here, Dave. Uh, The comic artist, Lee Sullivan, has signed something for him and made the comment, nice to see you and your suit. (laughs) (laughs) That must have been very strange to see a 10-year-old in a suit at a convention. Fantastic. And our final piece of feedback or comment here is from the Wobbly Wobbly Dicey Wicey RPG podcast, Mm -hmm. which is at WWDWRPG. I saw Peter Davison become Colin Baker and thought, tell me more. Yes. How about that? Isn't that the promise of the show? Just tell me more. Yeah. A a lot of people have memories around regenerations. Absolutely. And and look, I could go into many. We're we're out of time. But yeah, they are. They are so dramatic. And yeah, yeah, they're great, great Mm. things. Mm. It's getting time to wrap up this podcast, Rob. We've had a great time celebrating with all the listeners. Thank you very much. My final question to you. Mm Mm-hmm. 
What are you going to watch on Thursday night to celebrate the anniversary? Kinder. No. <laughs> it's just my answer to everything, Dave. <laughs> I'm, I'm not entirely sure yet, to be quite honest. I am possibly thinking of watching Kay's Avengers Arnie, though. Why not? It's your favourite era. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. What about you? Yep, I'm going to go back to my favourite era and watch a couple of stories, or episodes, I should say, that really meant a lot to me as a kid. I'm going to watch episode four of The Celestial Toymaker, partly to get ready for what's coming down the pipeline very soon. Oh, but wow, yep. But also just because I absolutely loved my audio copy of that episode when I was young. I listened to it over and over again. It really captured my imagination. Ad did episodes five and ten of the Dalek Master Plan. Mm -hmm. So I'm pulling out my Lost in Time set. I'm going to watch those as well, along with Day of Armageddon, episode two of the Dalek's Master Plan, which I still watch now, 15, 20 years after it was discovered, and still marvel that I have this to watch. So uh, I'm going back to the Heart and to watch a few loose episode classics. I still feel that way when I put that DVD in the in the player that these random episodes exist because then they're not top of mind for people. And when you realise, oh yeah, that actually does exist, they're, they're quite exciting to put on. Absolutely. So Rob, we'll wrap up there. When it comes to what's coming next, well, this <laughs> this this weekend will be our hot take of the Star Beast. And there'll be two more following the weeks after that. Uh, we will, of course, have a December list makers. We will, of course, have our December episode. We're not quite sure when we're going to drop it yet, but that will include all the listener feedback about the next three specials, which we will encourage you to write in because we, as you know, don't do listener feedback in the hot takes. We save it for the monthly episode. Mm -hmm. And because I'm sure we'll have a lot to discuss and wrap up there, the main feature of that episode, I won't tell you which but we've decided to do a cold take on a Christmas episode. Yes. Yes, it is, actually. Yes. <laughs> mm, I can't say any more or I'll spoil it. No. So, look, that's all coming up. There'll be a lot of us over the next six weeks. Then we'll be launching to 2024. We have got a little Star Wars project lined up for next year, which I think is going to be fun. But mm -hmm. for the next few weeks, it's all about Doctor Who, David Tennant, Shitty Gatwa, Russell T Davies, and a whole bunch of others. Are you excited, Rob? I'm, I am very excited, Dave. Yes, I am. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you to everybody for taking part in this very special episode of the Doctor Who show, celebrating 60 years of Doctor Who. I've enjoyed it. I hope you have too. We'll speak very soon. Thanks, Rob. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dave. This was a lot of fun. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show with Rob and Dave. Find us online by searching for The Doctor Who Show! We also love it when you write in. Drop us a line anytime at hello at the dwshow.net.